You're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it. This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job, we believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Welcome to Creatives Making Money. I am so excited to have my incredible guest today, Thomas Umstadt. As an award-winning speaker, Thomas teaches creative people all over the world how to grow famous and rich who doesn't want to be famous and rich? Um, He is also a podcaster. He hosts the Novel Marketing Podcast, The Creative Funding Show, and Liberty Buzzard. He currently serves as the CEO of Author Media. Uh, One of the reasons, I mean, there's like 5,000 reasons why I'm excited to have Thomas on today. One being that he's wildly entertaining, has great energy, hilarious, which you'll find out in a minute too. Um, But also he has so much expertise in the book world, as well as... um, creative financing and funding and crowdfunding and stuff. So today we're going to talk a lot about crowdfunding, but you know, I might throw some questions to him about books and being an author and being a speaker and how he lives his glamorous life. Thomas, welcome. Jamie, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited. I'm so excited. (laughs) So to kick off my episode, um, I like to ask this very stressful question, which is if you were just gifted $5 million dollars, completely free of any strings, completely, you know, just from a kind benefactor who just wanted you to have it, Uh, you know, no attachments, no taxes, all that jazz. What would you do with that money? Great question. So I do a couple of things. First thing is I would give uh, 10% to charity because I'm a big believer in that. And uh, the next thing I would do is I would start a business. And here's why I'm so passionate about businesses is that they do three good things simultaneously. They do something for people that they're willing to give their money for, right? Like the only reason you make money as a business is that if you're benefiting somebody in some way, that the thing that you sell is so beneficial, people are willing to part with their money for it. But while you do that, you're creating jobs, which transforms the lives of your employees and also gives you an opportunity to invest in your employees and help them become better people as well as like providing uh, for the family and making the world a better place by forcing every, all the other companies to compete with you. <laughs> so, and you do it in a sustainable way, right? So you're not having to ask for like charity to do it. You're able to make money from the customers that you're benefiting. So you benefit and make money. Your customers benefit. They're better off and your employees better off benefit because they have money. So now what business I would start, that is a secret, but I would definitely start a business. <laughs> oh, well, that was my next question, but I guess you can't tell me because then you'd have to kill me. <laughs> So I will say, um, when I went to college, my plan was to start a business while I was in college, and I didn't know which one. I was just kind of keeping my ear to the wind as to what the right business 
would be uh, because uh, timing is really important, right? Like right now is not a good time to start a social network because there's lots of social networks already out there. The best time to start a social network was in the mid 2000s when it was kind of an open playing field. And so what business to start kind of changes on a decade to decade basis. But you never know. You can find people who break the rules, right? For 100 years, it was the wrong time to start a car company, right? All the car companies that existed all started in the same decade, right? Back when Chrysler was a dude and Ford was a dude, like all of these people uh, actually existed and they started their own companies. But Elon Musk is like, no, I think I'm going to start a new car company today. It seems to be working out for him. So uh, don't ever listen when somebody says something can't be done. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny. This is completely unrelated to our interview, but since you're talking about Teslas, so I don't know if you ever did this. Teenage girls did this a lot. So there's this game called MASH where you like list out who you could like marry and whether you're going to live in a mansion, apartment, a shack or a house. That's what MASH is. M-A-S-H. What car you're going to drive, what pets you're going to have, how many kids, like all these ridiculous things, what city you're going to live in, right? Played it recently with a friend of mine and it turns out I'm going to have a Tesla. It's just like a game where you count numbers and cross things off and circle what you get. And apparently I'm going to have a Tesla, which was already something I was intending on. But I just, you know, it's just a fun, it's just fun. One of our podcast listeners offered to let me drive his Tesla. So we would do an episode about it for one of my podcasts. And it was so much fun. I am, it has ruined me for gas cars. Once you drive a Tesla, you just can't go back to gas. And it's so, and as you study the technology, you see how it's so clearly the future because it's so much simpler. Soon they'll be cheaper, not just to drive, but to maintain and to, to buy. You know, the fact that they're more expensive right now, I think is a historical fluke. And uh, the future is electric and Tesla's getting there first. It's a very exciting time to be, uh, be alive. I'm very excited. That is exciting. And you know what they say, once you go Tesla, you don't go back. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I believe, it. I believe it. I don't have a Tesla yet, but someday, no. someday. <laughs> I mean, I'm in Los Angeles where a lot of people, it's like every other person has a Tesla now. It's so, it's so commonplace here that I'm actually starting to have FOMO and feel really left out. Since you're not starting a car business, we don't have to go off on that tangent. I'd like to chat with you about crowdfunding since, crowdfunding, since I know you have a wealth of knowledge in that area as well as many areas. Uh, the fun thing about Thomas is he is very tactical in his approach. <laughs> he will tell you exactly what to do and how to do it. Um, Whereas I'll just tell you a story about how to feel about it. And we, together, we can take over the world. <laughs> Evil laughs. So, yes, what, do you, what are the big questions that people typically ask you about crowdfunding, right? Like, I, you know, there's so many different, you know, reasons to, to raise money, to, you know, to start a business, to start a new venture, um, to create a product for the first time and do some kind of beta version of that, right? To get support for that. Also, you know, my background, as you know, is in filmmaking. So I've used multiple crowdfunding platforms for um, pieces of film budgets, not necessarily the whole budget, but for the marketing piece or the post-production piece or the music composition piece, right? So there's so many different reasons and ways that people do this. And, and lots of independent artists are also, you know, use a lot of crowdfunding for their creative projects, not necessarily, not necessarily to get money for a for-profit venture. Um, so yeah, I'm interested to hear from you, you know, are there platforms that you prefer over other platforms? Like, let's start there. All right. So uh, a lot of people see the biggest benefit of crowdfunding as the funding part. They're like, I have a money problem. (laughs) I want to solve the money problem. And so I'm going to get on Kickstarter, I'm going to get on Patreon and I'm going to solve that money problem. But very often with a business, money is 
or the lack of money isn't actually the problem. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. And figuring out what that deeper problem is, is actually something that crowdfunding can help you with. And to explain this, I have a, a brief story about that uh, business that I started in college, the first one. Uh, so I started an audiobook publishing company. And at the time, the book, The Lean Startup, had not been published. And let me just say, if I had read The Lean Startup, all of the failures you're about to hear about would not have happened. <laughs> that 20 bucks you spend on that book is the best investment you'll ever make when it comes to entrepreneurship. Uh, so that book talks about this concept of a minimum viable product, which you probably heard that's become jargon. And if you haven't read the book, it's meaningless jargon. So you've got to read the book to know what people mean when they say MVP or minimum viable product. It's a I mean, different meaning of MVP. It's not the same as you to real MVP. I just want to clarify <laughs> that for everyone. We're not talking the Golden State Warriors here. Two different MVPs, okay? That's right. Okay. Very, very important distinction. Uh, and the other thing that the book talks about is listing your assumptions and testing those assumptions. And the whole purpose of a minimum viable product or MVP is to test those assumptions. And I had five assumptions based off of my experience with this business that I was starting. And four of those assumptions were dead on the money. I was exactly right. I was the only person that knew this and I had this huge edge because I understood these four assumptions, but I didn't know the fifth the assumption was wrong. So I was making audiobooks on CDs because for my target audience, I knew they listened to a certain kind of book in a certain kind of place. And I, and I knew they didn't know how to use this uh, MP3 CD, which was the technology back then. And so I assumed that they would be willing to pay more for traditional CDs that you just put in your CD player and play, which ended up being wrong. I went to trade shows and I'd have just on a fluke these MP3 CDs with 100 books on it. And that was all anyone wanted to buy in my whole business. All of the money I invested was about manufacturing at scale and on demand traditional CDs and ended up no one bought those. And I had all, even with the minimum inventory that I had because I had a lean model, even that just sat on the shelf unconsumed. And it was tragic because I had not read The Lean Startup. And what I love about crowdfunding is that you're able to create a minimum viable product and you're able to test your assumptions without having to manufacture anything. <laughs> you just create a campaign and you say, hey world, I've invented this thing or I'm creating this work of art and I want to see if you want this thing that I'm creating. And the world is able to tell you, yes, we want it or no, we don't. And, they're, and they vote not just with a, oh yeah, I, I like your idea. You're a friend of mine. But it's like, here is a check for $500 or a credit card swipe for $500, uh, 250 more than the level that you're requesting because I believe in you that much. And that's what's really exciting about crowdfunding is that you often have people donate above and beyond what you're asking for. Or they, they back at a level and never send you their mailing address because they don't care to get mailed the thing because they're backing you just to back you. <laughs> like your margins are so good uh, often with, with crowdfunding, which is, which is really exciting. So without assuming that you could have had psychic knowledge um, about the CD thing that happened, I'm curious, you know, what would you have done differently? Assuming that you would have read Lean Startup first, what step would have been different in your process? So I would have tested um, in a more inexpensive way. I wouldn't have manufactured nearly as many books because when we showed up at that first trade show, we had 50 books that we had manufactured at that point. And to test the assumptions, we really only needed two or three, uh, you know, a dozen tops. So that's the first thing I would have done differently. And the other thing I would have done is when I saw that the MP3 CDs were what everyone was resonating with, I would have just pivoted to that. But I was like, no, my business is this, right? I have this business plan. So it was for a business class. I actually made a business plan for a business class. And I'm like, 
got to stick with the plan, right? Because that whole concept of pivoting had, you know, this is back, we didn't have all the fancy language we have now and all the good ideas. Um, <laughs> I mean, people changed their ideas, but they didn't, you know, they were like admitting that you failed and changing, like pivoting just sounds so elegant and dignified and on purpose. It's not, you know, it doesn't have the baggage uh, that it used to. It's not because uh, you screwed up and you should go hide in a corner and be ashamed of yourself. Right. It's like, no, it's like basketball, right? You just pivot on your leg till you find an opening to shoot the basket. And in dance, pivoting is a, is a move. You know, it's, yeah. it's in, very intentional. Yeah. Part it, of the choreography. And, and really, uh, you know, when you're driving from point A to point B, you have to turn directions, right? Sometimes to get somewhere, you have to drive in the exact opposite direction to get out of the parking lot before you get on the highway. Right. Oftentimes you are driving in ways that don't seem to be moving you towards your destination, but they really are. And, and giving yourself permission to drive west when you're really trying to go north just because you're, you're like, hey, if I get on the highway, ultimately it'll, I'll get there faster than the direct route for all of these like, rural roads or whatever. It's not going to get you there. Uh, so that's uh, one of the things that I've done. I've really pivoted into that and moved to a more digital uh, mode quicker uh, because I assumed that because my target audience was not technically sophisticated, that they didn't want technical things. And that ended up being a very false assumption. Even country folks want the new fancy digital gadgets. Even country folks. <laughs> that doesn't sound at all disrespectful to your market, Thomas. <laughs> uh, so it's very easy to stereotype, right? Like, oh, this person's rural. This person is not uh, technically sophisticated. They don't know what an MP3 is. And therefore, to make a step to say, Therefore, they don't want to buy it. And that, that's the wrong step. So for me, it was like, yes, they don't know what an MP3 is, but they still want to buy it. <laughs> and mm. um, they, they want to own that, that new technology. And, and they want to have the cutting edge stuff. And they want to have the cheaper stuff. Because ultimately, MP3s are cheaper than CDs. And for audiobooks, a CD is a really terrible format, right? It doesn't remember where you left off. It only holds an hour and a half worth of audio, give or take. You know, cassette tape really is a better format for audiobooks than a CD. It's the, like this awkward adolescence for audiobooks. Uh, and now we have our glorious adult, adulthood with Audible, right? You have 100 books in your pocket, remembers where you were from device to device and can listen at high speed. It's amazing. You kids these days, you have no idea how good you have it. We used to have to <laughs> listen to our audiobooks in the snow, uphill, both ways. <laughs> On CD, carrying, lugging around this giant CD. I for sure had a CD Walkman, you know, that I would take on the my like, train commutes to and from my high school and it was heavy that thing was <laughs> yeah and an light. unabridged audiobook that's a dozen discs potentially like that's a a real commitment and a real cost because manufacturing a dozen discs is not a trivial cost like there's real cost there for the publisher and they want to they have to pass that on to the customer so you know audiobooks were 30 dollars was the like set price back in the day and that wasn't unrealistic given how expensive they were to manufacture yeah. So assuming, assuming that your business existed, if you were starting, not this specific business, but let's pretend that, that crowdfunding existed then the way that it does now, what do you think that that would have done for you with this venture? So I've done crowdfunding a bunch of times since then. <clears throat> and what it has allowed me to do is see uh, where the demand is and get the money ahead of time. So the beautiful thing about Kickstarter and Indiegogo is that people are effectively pre-ordering your product where you get the money ahead of time to make your product, which allows you to maintain equity and creative control over your project. So historically, if you have a big manufacturing project or a big development cost, uh, you have to go to money people to get the money, right? Unless you have money yourself. Uh, and those money people, when they give you money, 
they typically want to also have control, which makes sense, right? If I'm going to give you a million dollars, I want to have a certain voice to make sure that you're going to give me my million dollars back with return. Um, but the downside is, is that once you give away that control, you typically don't get that control back. What the money people want is not necessarily the same as what your customers want. And so the beautiful thing about testing your idea on Kickstarter or Indiegogo is that you really are only con interested in one constituent, right? your customers. So for us, our first Kickstarter project was for a WordPress plugin. And we had been developing this plugin internally. We were using it ourselves. And we were like, we don't know if the world wants this. Right. It's useful for us, but is it useful for the world? It's going to cost us thousands of dollars uh, to develop this. And so we put it on Kickstarter. We put a modest goal because we'd already done a lot of the work. We were trying to raise $2,500. And people went crazy, and they shared it, and they shared it. We ended up raising over uh, $12,000 for this plugin. And it's now the number one plugin in its category. <laughs> you know, those Amazing. initial people who felt a sense of ownership, right? And they're listed on our website, right? These are the founders of the plugin. They get some, <laughs> you know, some cred. And we have this special level uh, I think at $150, you got lifetime free updates. So you got all the new versions. I mean, those people made bank. <laughs> They've mm -hmm. saved themselves so much money on all the updates since then. And they have this good sense of uh, um, pride and connection with the product. So when we were trying to fund, the people, the early backers became our biggest advocates. They felt more like investors than like customers. And that shift in relationship where your customers feel a sense of ownership and they want to see you succeed because they feel like they participate in your success. It's very much like the relationship between a sports team and the fans of that sports team, right? When I'm rooting for the Texas Longhorns to beat Georgia in the, in the bowl game, I am contributing in no way to the performance of that team, right? The Longhorns, the success or failure is not at all connected to my participation, especially if I'm watching on TV. And yet when they lose, I feel like I have lost. And when they win, I feel like I have won. That is a victory that I did not earn. <laughs> Those guys worked really hard for that victory and I had nothing to do with it. And yet I feel that emotionally deep down and kicks and crowdfunding gives that same kind of relationship with your customers. And man, that is the best kind of customer to have where they see your success as their success. Man, that's the kind of customer who will defend you you know, somebody leaves you a negative review on Amazon, they'll leave with their own response. Be like, oh yeah, well, blah, blah. you know, somebody <laughs> complains about you on Twitter, on Reddit, suddenly there, there's this big fight, right? It's a difference. You know, if you criticize Marvel on Twitter, you better be ready to take and defend yourself from the Marvel fanboys. Because oh yeah. As a brand, they built that same kind of uh, following, but they did it with billions and billions of dollars. Crowdfunding gets you there way cheaper. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to ask the question that I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering, what is this plugin and what does it do? <laughs> so the plugin is called My Book Table and it creates a bookstore on your website. And it's particularly useful if you're an author and the more books you have as an author, the more helpful it is. So when you have just one or two books, you can just create pages for those books. It's no big deal. But if you're an author with 20 books, with 30 books, managing that across the different series and genres and co-authors is a huge hassle. And our plugin makes that really easy. It's and there's actually a free version. You can get it at mybooktable.com. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, there's a free version and a pro version. Uh, and the free version has about 80% of the features. For all you authors listening out there, get yourself my book table. Make your life easier when you're selling <laughs> books on your website. There you go. This PSA is brought to you. No. Um, <laughs> do it for America. Do it for the, do it for the kids. Do, do it, it for, for the, the world. Kids. What do you think are the biggest mistakes people make when they are uh, putting together a crowdfunding campaign or have an intention to raise money for their venture through crowdfunding? 
Great question. So the number one mistake people make is thinking that if they have a good idea and they put it on Kickstarter, that the crowd will follow. Yeah, and that is not how crowdfunding works. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> no, right? if only that were true. Why and not? the problem is, is that that is true for like a tiny fraction of people, the lottery winners. And it's like, man, I just kept buying lottery tickets and finally it paid off and I, now I'm a millionaire, right? There are people who can get up in, on a stage and give that speech and it's a true speech. But that does not mean that buying lottery tickets is actually a good business plan, right? The lottery ticket is a terrible investment. And because if you fail, you, you get nothing, right? It's, there's so many mathematical reasons why it's a bad investment. But for some people, it's not. And approaching Kickstarter like a lottery is that same way. Of like, man, I have such a brilliant idea. I'm the exception. All I have to do is tell the world about my brilliant idea and they will f cover me with money. Isn't that yeah. how it works though? <laughs> no, it, okay. It, it, no, it, it's, it's really not. <laughs> so the reality is, is that crowdfunding is where you bring your crowd. Uh, you bring your own crowd. So BYOC. Yeah, BYOC. We at uh, Author Media had been blogging for authors. We've been writing articles on marketing. We have been ranking you know, high on Google for key search phrases, right? You search, search book marketing to this day will be on the first page of Google for articles that we've written. And we've built an email list and a passionate following of people who liked us already. <laughs> we already had a crowd, people who knew we, who we were. They weren't customers, right? We were building high-end, at least for that market, websites. Most of those people hadn't bought anything from us, but they've been following our content and they had gotten to know us on social media and, and through our blog. And so when we told them, hey, we've made something, is this something that you want? We already had a crowd who was listening to us, that we'd earned the right to talk to them. We had their attention. Uh, and that attention is very precious, and it's something that you have to invest in. It's hard to get that quickly. A lot of people think that, like, oh, I'll just do something clever. I'll have my five minutes of fame or my 15 minutes of fame. I just got to write a viral blog post. And it's like, man, if you want to hit a home run, you got to step up to the plate a lot of times. And a lot of people you see who go viral, you'll see them trying and trying and trying before they go viral. And often it's very similar, the times that didn't go viral. It was that you know, hundredth time you made that TikTok video that suddenly it's a TikTok video that everybody's watching. And you've done a hundred of those and leading up to it, none of them went video, uh, viral. And uh, we had done that, we'd paid our dues. And this is the mistake people make is they think that they're the exception. They don't have to pay their dues. And um, they fail because they don't have the biggest uh, tribe. The second mistake is pricing their project uh, incorrectly. And this is a mistake that can go either way. So uh, one way to price is too low. And we made this mistake. We had a plugin that we did. That we priced too low and we had everyone who was interested in this plugin backed us on Kickstarter and they love it. And man, for those hundred people, they love the plugin. Problem is the market for this plugin is 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, it was a, a, pl a plugin for managing a professional speaking calendar. And it turns out that professional speakers fit primarily into three, two groups. Professional speakers who are so big, they have an assistant who does this for them, and they don't care about saving that assistant time, and so they're not interested. Or professional speakers who aren't speaking enough, where they don't really want to show off how little they're speaking on their website. So for that tiny middle group who are doing their own website and have enough gigs to show off, we reached every single one of them, I feel, with our plugin. But really what should have happened is our plugin should have failed. Like the Kickstarter would have failed and we would have saved ourselves money uh, with a failed campaign. Because failure is beneficial. It's, it can teach you. And one of the things I like about crowdfunding is that it reduces the cost of failure. Right? When I started my audiobook 
business. I lost tens of thousands of dollars invested in equipment and time and employees because it was a very expensive failure. Whereas if I could have tested that idea cheaply, man, I'd have been so much happier in the, in the long run. The other mistake is pricing your campaign too high. You know, you're launching a project and you put all the bells and whistles into the cost. It's like, no, what you're trying to fund is the minimum viable product, right? This is the minimum version of your product that will work. It's not the board game with the fancy components, it's the board game with the basic components. And what you can do is after you succeed, if there's still time left at the end of your campaign, you add stretch goals to increase the quality, right? You go from plastic pieces of your board game to wooden pieces of your board game. And as more people back and as economies of scale kick in, you can do that and you can make it work. Um, but I would say that's the second uh, mistake is pricing it incorrectly. I'm curious. So is the speaker plugin still a thing? It is. You can still download it and, and people still do. And we have, you know, it's well reviewed on wordpress.org's plugin repository. I think it has five reviews from five very passionate users. Well, I wonder if it's, I mean, this is totally unrelated to our conversation, but I'm, I'm like, I wonder if comedians could use it and just other people who do appearances. It seems like the type of thing that could cross over into other, other, you know, uses with what it actually does and what its function is, right? Yeah, when it came out, it was a time of a desert of uh, scheduling and calendaring plugins on WordPress. There was very little out there that did uh, events. Now there are dozens and dozens of plugins and all kinds of different use cases. So it's not as needed or as useful, but sure, a comedian could do it. And actually, it's a good fit for a comedian because it's all about somebody who's speaking somewhere, but they're not trying to sell the tickets themselves. Most event plugins are all about, I'm hosting my own event. I want you to buy tickets here. Whereas a comedian is really wanting to very quickly get you to the website that's selling tickets for the host. So sure. And that is actually, you know, good audience we never thought about. <laughs> Stand-up comic. So they're, they're always I'm touring. Wondering. They're always on the road and all the right. different places. And they're very busy and they, they cannot afford assistance like big professional speakers can. That's for damn sure. Most of them. So we should have it my comic calendar. We branded it all wrong. We should have talked to you, Jamie. <laughs> Listen, there's always a spinoff option, okay? I'm just saying. Go. I know hey, lots of stand-up comics, and it's I, I, whatever ease you can give them to keep their website maintained, I think would be a great move. Yeah, so the plugin is my speaking page and my speaking events. The code's open source, so if any of y'all want to take this idea and run with it. Ooh, oh, okay. If you have those skills, <laughs> I certainly don't. Here's, here's your business idea right here. PHP is on GitHub. Just rip him off. You're welcome. Yeah. You Silver <laughs> platter, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. So are there any types of projects that you think are not a good fit for crowdfunding that you've seen that you think are just not, people shouldn't do? The don't do's of crowdfunding. Sure. So there's a lot of projects that aren't a good fit uh, for crowdfunding. Uh, service type businesses can be tricky, right? So if um, you're selling something that's really best paid for on an ongoing basis. Uh, it's hard to do a crowdfunding campaign for that, right? You could sell first year of the service, but it's not a good fit. A service more like Patreon is better, uh, but really for a service-based business, you need to be collecting your own money. And at that point, the benefits of Kickstarter in terms of testing your idea aren't quite as good. There are other ways of doing your MVP that are better. So if you're selling a subscription-style service, Crowdfunding is probably not for you. And then another place where crowdfunding kind of breaks down is where suddenly you're needing billions of dollars. So Tesla or Nick, all Elon of a Musk, sudden. Yeah. Sounds so, like my every day I wake up in the morning. Right. So let's say you want to start a car company, right? Crowdfunding is not going to be the way to do it. Now I will say Elon Musk did work in crowdfunding into his business model, right? So 
what did he do if you wanted a Model 3? You paid $1,000 to get on the waiting list. You know, 10,000 people or 15,000 people are giving you $1,000 to get in line. It's like, well, gosh, we know we can sell that many cars for sure, right? These people are very committed. <laughs> and, uh, but in general, you don't see really big companies raise funds that way. Typically, at that point, you need to start giving away equity or, or, or getting debt to get into the billions. The biggest crowdfunding campaigns in history um, are in the tens of millions of dollars. And I think in the low tens, I think that, I don't know what the current record holder is, but I think it's somewhere in the 15 million range, 20 million. So do you know what that product was? uh, The coolest cooler, I think did um, 10 or 11 million. Uh, The Pebble, one of the Pebble smartwatch projects did around 10 million. Um, Typically they're technology products that do really well uh, that, that are like the highest category. And I will say that's the best fit. Right, because if you need to get something manufactured in China, you really need to know how many of that thing you need to get manufactured. Because if you get the number wrong, you could lose money with a successful product. This happens to toy companies, right? They're making hula hoops or yo-yos, and kids are going crazy for hula hoops or yo-yos. You know, pick your decade, Cabbage Patch dolls, and people are flying across the world to buy a Cabbage Patch doll, and then suddenly you hit saturation, and you cannot sell a yo-yo for love or for money or a fidget spinner. So pick a more uh, modern example, right? There was the year when everyone bought a fidget spinner, but then everyone had bought a fidget spinner and the price went from $20 a fidget spinner to 99 cents for a fidget spinner. And if you get that timing wrong and you're stuck with a warehouse full of fidget spinners that you can't sell, that may, that warehouse may comprise your entire profit and you've suddenly lost money on a successful project. And so understanding the level of demand is really helpful, right? If you have a hit on your hands, you want to place an order at the factory for, you know, all of those things that you can sell into that demand and you're not giving the opportunity for somebody else to to take that money. But if you only have a base hit, you don't want to, you know, buy a home runs worth of, of product. And crowdfunding allows you to gauge that interest and see how passionate people are your idea so you can get it manufactured. Uh, for digital products, that's not as big of a deal, right? If you're making a music album, right? It's like, oh, I want to produce my album. I you know, get these 10 songs produced with a fancy LA producer. You have a fixed amount of cost there, right? You know, you're paying your $50,000 for that album or your $10,000 for that album. And whether you sell 100 copies or 100,000 copies, your cost per person isn't, doesn't go up that much. There's some customer service and some cost there, but it's insignificant, right? You're happy to sell as many as you want. And if they're downloading on iTunes, there's no customer service because they call iTunes when they're unhappy. <laughs> like the MV3 won't work on my iPod. And like you don't have to take that call. Apple, Apple takes that call for you. What I'm wondering is if somebody, for anyone who's listening, who is really wanting to fund something like a short film or a feature film or a music album, you know, when they, they want like, you know, 10 to a hundred thousand dollars, right? but it isn't necessarily something that, that has a direct ROI or delivers more than here's the, here's the piece of work that you helped contribute and invest in, right? <clears throat> Are there any differences in how you recommend someone approach the campaign or steps that they take to build their tribe versus someone who, has, who is creating a minimum viable product and is intending to you know, generate generate a multitude of those products and deliver, deliver those products to the people who are interested in kind of, kind of pre-buying it. Um, anything to keep in mind there that you want to share? Yeah. So, so first a general rule of thumb, and that is the, uh, there's a very strong correlation with the number of Kickstarter campaigns you've personally backed 
in your likelihood for success. I saw a graph on this and campaigns that have backed only one, which is the minimum, have a 16% chance of success. Whereas creators who've backed over 50 campaigns have like a 63% chance of success. So in every category, there are best practices and they're different category to category. One of the things I had been doing is like filled my wheels. I backed a Kickstarter project in every category. So I had to find a dance category to back, which interestingly, the dance category actually has the highest success rate uh, because dance um, communities have the most defined communities and they have the best connection with what their community wants. If you're putting on a, you know, a recital or some sort of dance um, pr product or performance, you already know who your people are and you already know how much it's going to cost and there's a good chance you're going to succeed. I'd have never guessed that. I'm not into dance. I don't watch dance. I don't dance. <laughs> but I, I love dance. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, what was it? What did you end up backing? I'm so curious. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I don't even remember. <laughs> but <laughs> but I filled up my wheel. And, um, you know, the uh, board game uh, category is the most innovative. These are the guys who are you know, coming up with all the new ideas like stretch goals. But the film and uh, TV category is very mature. And there are uh, creators who are raising hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars on projects there. And there's a well-trod path uh, on how to do it. And one of the ways that they increase uh, how much people back, so, you know, $10 to get the DVD or $20 to get the DVD, that doesn't scale super well, right? You have to have a lot of people at $20 a person to get you to your $100,000 or $500,000. But some of the things that they'll do is they'll have higher levels that give people greater access to the casting crew. Um, and at the highest levels, right, you give $25,000, you get listed as an associate producer. It doesn't cost you anything to list somebody in the credits. 25 grand, sure, or 50 grand, whatever it is. Just we'll your pride. You yeah. Just your pride. <laughs> hey, getting listed on IMDb <laughs> is something some people are willing to pay for, right? It's, it's a life goal. I've, man, I want to be listed in IMDb in this um, Kickstarter campaign. will list me there for $50,000. I'll for sure have my line item and IMDb, and suddenly that's motivation enough for, for a certain kind of, of person. Or, you know, you get to visit the set for a day and watch the filming. Or a popular thing with novelists is you get to name a character or you get to name a place name. Oh, which is a really inexpensive thing to do. Yeah. Or if you're not willing to give up that much creative control, you get to pick from a list of names for <laughs> the character. And I'm down to these three and you're actually outsourcing some of the creative works. Like I couldn't decide. So I'm going to let somebody else pay me to make the decision. And then they get to have that sense of ownership of like, I named so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, th this is done in video games. Actually, I backed a, uh, or I played a game called Wasteland uh, 2 which uh, Wasteland 3 actually just raised, I think, $3 million on FIG, which is a competing crowdfunding platform. And with Wasteland 2, one of the rewards was you got to be one of the random NPCs. So NPC stands for non-player character. Video games are typically filled with these. Normally, they're just named guard, guard number two, guard number three, right? They have very generic names. Well, in Wasteland, when you shot somebody, you shot somebody with a name. You were killing a Kickstarter backer. <laughs> and that was a great way of, it, it didn't cost them very much to name all of these NPCs. And it gave those people a huge sense of ownership. And it was their reward for backing above and beyond. So that wasn't the bare minimum backing level. It wasn't the $20 a person level. That was the $100 person, $150 a person got to get your name in it. And, you know, being featured in the credits, people love that. And it, again, it doesn't cost you much to give away, but it's a way of adding value and, and bringing up that price point and uh, motivating people. Uh, it's so it's so funny <laughs> when you say it, when you said it the way you said it, you're really saying 
Well, if you donate money, we can make sure that you, the fake you gets shot in the video game. <laughs> <laughs> you just killed a player who was named after, or the character <laughs> who was named after someone who donated money for the, contributed money for this game. That's hilarious. Yeah, but people love that. Scott Sigler, very famously, uh, would name various, he writes these very violent um, books, and he would name corpses after his, you know, most passionate, you know, form community members and people were like oh my gosh i you know i'm in the movie <laughs> so uh, and, and it's interesting if you're a creator and if you live amongst creators especially if you're in la i know a lot of listeners of the show are in the la world you, you have to realize that there are things that la people take for granted right like being in the credits of a small film uh that no, meanwhile i'm like i've probably done that a lot <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like when you think about it, you're like, well, gosh, I'm probably in the credits of like half a dozen small indie projects, right? It's no big deal. But for somebody who lives in the middle of the country, that's very unusual, right? It's, it's, you go to your high school reunion, you may be the only person listed in the credits of a film because the kinds of people who are in the credits of the film are all clustered in really two different cities in the country. You know, some in other places, but they're really cl clustered in those places. And so those things are more valuable outside of that area. This is kind of the magic of trade. The seasonings that they throw away as trash in India sell for a fortune in England, right? It's because it's rare, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. And there's a lot of things, regardless of your category, there are treasure things that often are not expensive to give away. And that's why following other campaigns is so valuable because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I know people are listening to this in all kinds of different categories. And I'm, I'm, we don't have time to go into every category. And I no. frankly don't know all of the tricks and tips <laughs> in every category. Uh, but there are successful campaigns who are figuring that out and you can steal their idea. Yeah, steal their ideas and get creative. And I'm sure that even just like this sparks other ideas too. Just the idea of, well, what can I give away that that is a value or is cool or makes someone feel invested? So, you know, a fun thing to do might be to like brainstorm a whole list of just like literally sit down and force yourself to brainstorm 50 different things that would be really sexy, appealing, interesting of value to the person who's contributing money, what would make them feel really super invested in what you're creating, um, which applies to all marketing across the board. Like the more yeah. you can have your buyers and customers feel super, super invested in like they're a part of it, the better it's going to be for your sales and for word of mouth marketing and all of that stuff. Um, I call them brand advocates, but you know, that's, it's yes, all of, all of that. Um, yeah, and, and asking your community, what rewards do you want to see? is brilliant. And now they have a sense of ownership over the rewards in addition to the project that they're helping to fund. I mean, if, if I'm the person who gave you an idea for a reward and it got listed and I backed at that reward, and I, I mean, I am your biggest brand advocate. I'm your biggest champion in the arena of ideas you will ever find. And all you had to do was listen. This is one of the most powerful things. This is such a powerful principle is if you will just listen to people, people are desperate to be listened to. They're desperate for connection. And it's so often you see those like faceless corporations. That's what you interact with all day long, right? I'm using an Apple iPod. Apple doesn't listen to me. I buy things on Amazon. Amazon doesn't listen to me. If you will be the one exception and actually listen to your actual customers and treat them as actual human beings, oh my goodness, they will love you forever. So true. So I have one more question for you, Thomas, and I really thank you so much for this and you've been so generous with your time and, and expertise. Is there a general rule that you know of around like what someone's trying to finance and what platform you think would be best for that as far as crowdfunding is concerned? 
Um, I don't know of a general rule. I know of competing schools of thought. Uh, mm. So some people say, oh, technology products are better on Indiegogo, but I see tons of successful technology products on Kickstarter. Um, I will say that if you're a big budget campaign, it does make sense to approach Kickstarter Indiegogo through back channels and say, hey, what can you do for me? Because sometimes they'll make deals and they'll be like, oh, if you'll, you know, you're going to spend $50,000 on your promo for your Kickstarter or Indiegogo, we will guarantee you a you know, editor's choice or something on the homepage for a day or we'll feature you in our email. So there is, if you're bringing money and platform and credibility to the platform, uh, sometimes they will work with you. We're not really supposed to talk about this and I, you know, they don't promise anything, right? But they're, they're at com competition, right? And if you're a big person, uh, you're potentially bringing users to the platform that will back other projects and bring additional money into the platform. So there is a, a fight and you can kind of have them bid against each other if, if you're a big player. Uh, so that's a, an, an approach, but most people are not big enough <laughs> to be able to get Indiegogo to throw things at them. And I will say, you don't have to pre-negotiate that. So I was working with a client on Indiegogo. She got featured in their email uh, for her campaign and she didn't ask for that. She didn't reach out to them. They just found her campaign. They liked it. We were following a lot of best practices and boom, you know, her campaign is being emailed out to you know tens of thousands of Indiegogo users and uh, featured on the homepage. And we're like, yay, <laughs> this, we didn't plan on this, but it's definitely helping us with our goals. We're very thankful. To I, I like them both. Uh, I've used them both. I, my, I have a bias towards Kickstarter, not because of anything on Kickstarter per se, but because I really like the website KickTrack, which gives you really detailed analytics for your Kickstarter campaign. So I feel like there's a little bit better reporting for Kickstarter but I've had successful campaigns on both. I'm not a um, uh, partisan. <laughs> this has been so super valuable, Thomas. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and energy and expertise and brilliance and sense of humor and all that good stuff with our listeners today. I'm so grateful. I want to make sure that you guys know to go listen to Thomas's podcast, which is called The Creative Funding Show. And that is at creativefundingshow.com. So make sure you go check it out, listen, because he's got tons of, tons of more tactical tips and strategies that you can use to get your projects financed. And is there anywhere else in particular where you like to be stalked? For this topic, Creative Funding Show is the place. So yeah. if you're an author and you're wanting to sell more books, novel marketing uh, podcast is, is very helpful. But uh, yeah, if you're, if you're wanting ideas about creative funding, at Creative Funding Show, we talk about Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and we also talk about Patreon some, which we haven't talked about much on this show, but that's a different, slightly different model in that people are paying you on an ongoing way. So if you're a musician, it's a song a month rather than an album a year. It's kind of a good way to think of it, or a music video a month rather than an album a year. But it's, it's a, so it's a more even, less lumpy way of, of making money. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thomas. This has been amazing. Thanks, Jamie. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money, but don't go anywhere without subscribing. Also, I just wanted to mention that ratings and reviews are really a huge help. So if you've connected with this episode or a previous episode, or if something you heard here just resonated with you really deeply or gave you the feels or a huge aha, letting me know with a rating and review really, really makes my day. So I'd so appreciate it and you. Remember, if you're just getting started making money with your creative talents and you're just figuring it out, you're likely going to need a website that helps you sell your products and services. So to learn more about my approach to writing that sells, you can visit thejamiejensen.com slash free training. 
On this training, I'll walk you through each page of your website and explain what must be there in order to pre-sell clients and customers. This makes it way easier for you to make money. You'll also learn about my signature course, copy that, but of course there's no pressure. All sales of that course help cover the cost of this podcast, but the training is available to you whether you decide to purchase the course or not. If you're looking to connect with more listeners and like-minded creatives who who check out this podcast, you also can do that. We continue the conversation from these episodes in our private online Facebook lounge. You can head to creativesmakingmoney.com slash group to join the free group. And as always, you can find all important links and details in this episode's show notes, always available at creativesmakingmoney.com. Don't hesitate to head over there now. And as always, create like you mean it.